So I'd like to continue this week with the theme of the Bodhisattva. And we've been um, exploring the Bodhisattva the last three weeks. For those who are here for the first time or who haven't been to the previous weeks, um, Bodhisattva is a uh, Sanskrit word um, similar to a Pali word, the languages of ancient India, which literally means uh, a being dedicated to awakening. Bodhi, the word for awakening or enlightenment, and sattva, the word for being. It's come to mean someone who is dedicated both to inner awakening for oneself, but also dedicated to helping others. And it becomes this um, wonderful model for our own lives. And that's what I want to explore today. Take a little, go a little bit further from where we were last time in about the first half hour. And then the last half hour give us a chance to, in a way, um, at our own pace and the way we might like to, to consider one's own self as a bodhisattva by making a bodhisattva vow. And it will be totally optional. So there's no pressure, but we talked about that last time. It's a way of um, working with uh, a kind of inner commitment to both grow inwardly, but also help others. And again, if you're here for the first time and it doesn't feel appropriate, that's, that's completely fine. If you're just, oh my gosh, I've stumbled into a bodhisattva training camp. <laughs> no, and, <laughs> no, and, I don't know whether this is for me. Well, that, that's okay. <laughs> uh, and you'll, you'll find that it actually is quite commonsensical and has a, has a lot of resonance with what many or even most of us actually feel, which is that this maybe what called us to be here at Spirit Rock is that we feel this pull to grow inwardly, to explore the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, to see how we might have our hearts be more open, our minds be clearer, our wisdom be stronger, our ability to act skillfully in the world be supported and enhanced. Well, that's the bodhisattva, <laughs> you know, and to have, but particularly have that connection of the inner looking transformative work with being in the world and our relationships and our workplace and our attempt to make the world a better place. And so in that sense, it has uh, quite a resonance with, with a lot of Western traditions. And particularly, I think the first time when I introduced the Bodhisattva, I talked about the uh, resonance with many of the uh, Western traditions. I was thinking of the Jewish prophets who are these figures who have a deep inner life but are dedicated to helping those in need, the poor, and so forth. And that, that model of the prophets has been uh, the model that, for example, Jesus saw his life as following that model. And it's been a very powerful model for probably most of the Western mm, exemplars of, we might say, a spiritually grounded action in the world. People like Martin Luther King, or Dorothy Day, or uh, Cesar Chavez, 
are all deeply motivated by that prophetic ideal, which I find to be very close to the bodhisattva ideal, that sense of inner work and, and uh, outer effectiveness and dedication. Last time I mentioned how the bodhisattva can be looked at in at least four ways. And especially for those here for the first time, I want to go over those really briefly and mostly talk about some of the factors that in more depth than we have in, in the last weeks. So I want to talk particularly about wisdom, skillful action, ethics, and then come back to the, the sense of a vow or commitment. So the, on, on, on one level, the bodhisattva is understood as an archetypal figure, almost like an inspirational, almost a non-human, pretty much non-human figure. So we have these bodhisattvas who are almost like heavenly beings, uh, archetypes. We have one over here. This is the bodhisattva Alavokitesvara, the bodhisattva of um, compassion, who has a thousand arms, each with an eye, and each of the arms able to work in different ways. So there's this uh, capability of skillful action. You might imagine Avalokitesvara goes into action, has a thousand arms. It's almost like a uh, handy man or a handy woman who comes to a job and says, okay, action is needed. Which arm should I use for this one? You know, and, you know, they have some intuitive mechanism, so the right arm of the thousand arms whips into action. And you know, each of them, you can imagine having a particular tool. You know, one of them might be uh, um, a mechanical tool. Another one might be the tool of uh, skillful conflict resolution. Another one might be the tool of uh, compassionate listening. Another one might be the tool of uh, um, cleaning up environmental messes and so forth. And that's the, that's Avalokitesvara. And I, some of the others, this is uh, the Chinese version of Avalokitesvara. This is uh, Kuan Yin, beloved by many. Probably the, it actually is the same archetype, but it uh, changes gender as it goes from India to China. And then there's uh, also uh, a version of um, the same archetype is Tara in Tibet, who's perhaps the most beloved a bodhisattva in Tibet, also this compassionate figure. And uh, these are all bodhisattvas that hang around where I live, in my home. I've brought them from my home for us. Uh, and this is in the center here is uh, Manjushri, the smallest, of the, the smallest of the paintings, but by no means the least significant. And Manjushri is the bodhisattva of discriminating wisdom seen in many of the paintings holding a sword which is said to cut through delusion. Very useful. (laughs) There's a lot of delusion out there (laughs) and in here. So um, so that's that's the first level. And the second level is, I think, of the great uh, human exemplars like the ones I mentioned, like the Jewish prophets or Jesus or... Dorothy Day or Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma, who are these exemplars who seem to personify the ability to both have inner, inner dedication and outward action. The third level is, I think, what we might call the ordinary bodhisattva, the people in our lives who just seem to have that combination of kindness and love and ability to work with 
uh, people. It might be someone who was like a grade school teacher who just had this amazing, you felt an amazing connection with. You knew this person was really dedicated. Or even someone who works maybe in a store and is just, you know, I, th- I think of that coming to Spirit Rock as I go fr- uh, across the Richmond San Rafael Bridge. And there are uh, different uh, people who take the toll, who accept the four dollars. And um, some of them just seem to have this intention to really spread good energy. And it's, you know, they are bodhisattvas. Can you imagine that? Just Or people who take a job that in our society is not rated high on the prestige sale, someone who just um, is, takes phone calls, you know, at a business or something. And people can, people who would dedicate themselves to really being of service and do it in a kind of dedicated way and looking at that almost as a, uh, a path, how can I do that better? Those would be bodhisattvas, those would be ordinary bodhisattvas or, you know, uh, whatever, a sports coach who just was really dedicated to the, the people and just year after year does this. These are, these are ordinary bodhisattvas. And then I was thinking the fourth level is what does it mean to ourselves? What, how, how does that uh, model of connecting inner work and helping others, how, do, how does that manifest in me? And I want, you know, I, what we'll do today is actually ask that question in a little more depth uh, in a little while. Bodhisattvas um, can train. They can have a course of uh, study, of practice, a curriculum, and it's outlined on the, on the hand- handouts. They particularly train in these ten qualities. And we'll mention in depth a few of them more, but we can just look at this. And you can see how there are, they are each aspects of the kind of training that would help each of us be more effective to connect inner transformative work with helping others. So the first training is in generosity. You know, and, there, and what the generosity does is it, it really strengthens that quality, we might say, of service. It strengthens the motivation to help others, to serve others. When we work with generosity, again, it's not just, uh, not just giving of funds, but it might be the giving of time and energy. And what we explore as we carry out that practice is we, we come up against, oh, how do I feel stingy? Or how do I feel, oh, I got to get mine? Or we, we, as we do that, we purify in a certain way. We see the separations between self and other, because a bodhisattva has looked very carefully at how we separate self and other. And knows that well and looks particularly at the unhealthy ways of separation. I would say bodhisattva also can keep their boundaries. But there's, there's a way in which we look at how do I just want good things to happen for me or my inner circle? And how do I not consider as worthy of uh, well-being in the same way others. You know, and, we, and Bodhisattva studies that. Bodhisattva develops an ethics. And this is part of uh, skillful action that I'll talk about in a little more depth in a moment. A Bodhisattva develops in patience, the ability to be with what's difficult, the ability to be actually with what's wonderful and not grab for it. It's this inner discipline to... Um, to uh, essentially not be taken over by aversion and wanting, but which manifests particularly 
and in the text it's particularly explored in terms of being with uh, challenging situations. Bodhisattvas can be with challenges in a pretty mature way, and that's part of the training. I don't know, so I guess that would be connected with this um, day long I'm offering in September called the Dharma of Difficult People. That's a bodhisattva training. Because difficult people help you develop patience. And probably a few other virtues as well, like the ability to speak skillfully and. Um, control one's um, anger and so forth, or work with anger. Effort or energy is the quality of, of having the ability to keep on going, this, this energy to keep on uh, doing the practice, to keep on uh, being out there, even, again, even especially when things are not going so well. It's this energy to keep uh, consistent, to keep continuous, to, um, and also keep the effort just to doing the inner looking. Meditation, or you might say more generally, a kind of inner spiritual practice, is that kind of laboratory where the bodhisattva um, develops more awareness. It's like the, the, the value of having a daily spiritual practice. If you're in training to um, become free oneself and help others, we need some practices to do that. And the meditation is really crucial for that. Wisdom I'll come back to in a little more depth in a moment, as well as with skillful means. Wisdom is the ability to see clearly and to not be fooled by things, but to see clearly causes and conditions and what leads to suffering and so forth. And skillful means is, as I mentioned, this ability to become more and more intuitive and know what to do in a given situation. Uh, and that's, that's uh, again, bodhisattvas can act effectively and it, there's a kind of a training to do that. And vow or commitment is this ability to come back to one's deeper aspiration and have the deeper aspiration be present in one's life more. You know, I think all of us have very deep aspirations, but the problem is that we often forget them. Things get busy. You know, I was talking with someone just yesterday, and she was saying that sometimes just things get so busy, and I have to do so much, that I forget actually what my life is about. And it's very common, isn't it? You know that, and so the the uh, the training and vow or commitment gives us a way to to really stay more connected with what's important to us, because it is the case that it's easy to forget. You know, oh my God, I got to do this by tomorrow. Got to do this, and we sometimes get disconnected from what's important. The ninth powers, or bala, um, traditionally refers to psychic powers, but we could say, think of it more generally as the kind of gifts that we have that really permit us to act more effectively and do this inner work. And lastly, uh, what's translated as knowledge or jnana is, um, is it also related to wisdom. It's the higher spiritual understanding that, again, is at the basis of effective action. It might be the kind of the visions which some of the Jewish prophets or Jesus had, or thinking of Martin Luther King, he, you know, that last speech before he died where he said, I have been to the mountaintop and I've seen over it. That kind of, almost like an intuitive visionary quality that helps bodhisattvas um, see more clearly. You know, think of the people who are the famous bodhisattva-like beings and they all have this quality of vision. You know, that king, you can see that and it's connected with all the other qualities. 
So just a little more mention of a, a few of these, and then we'll work particularly with Vow. Um, the quality of wisdom is particularly central to the bodhisattva. In fact, sometimes when there's a shorthand for the bodhisattva, you know, when, when it said, well, we don't have time to mention all ten of these qualities, let's just mention two. And those that are mentioned are wisdom and compassion. And I think actually, very interestingly, the uh, Vietnamese Buddhist in the 20th century dealing with conditions of colonialism and war said, actually, we have to broaden it further. Maybe we'll have three. And they said, we have to have wisdom, compassion, and courage. You know, and the, cur- the wisdom and compassion, more like the clear seeing, the open heart of love and service. And then the courage is this quality of being able to act which we'll come to in a moment in terms of skillful action. The wisdom is particularly understood in terms of the teaching of the Four Truths, which is probably the most fundamental teaching of the Buddha. The teaching that there is suffering in the world, that there is human suffering, that there, is, um, there are ways that we get lost in our suffering. There are ways that families or communities or organizations or societies get locked into suffering or individuals, you know, are just caught in a kind of suffering. And the transformative work is to unlock that locked-in quality of suffering. But the first teaching is that we have to actually know the nature of suffering. We have to study it. We have to know particularly, and this is the second truth, how suffering is particularly connected with a kind of compulsive grasping after certain things, a lot of it unconscious, a kind of grasping or pushing away of, of experience. It might be the fact that people don't know how to sit with something unpleasant. People have, you know, let's say um, someone says something that's a little nasty to me, it's, and I, it's actually painful, but I react to that person and start yelling at that person as if I can ward off the pain, in part because I can't actually be with the pain and respond compassionately to myself and others. There's, there's a way in which so much of suffering is what I call passing on the pain. You know, and we see this in the Middle East or in a lot of conflicts or war where one person hurts one person and then that person in return hurts the other, as if that's going to solve the situation. That, that would be called delusion. <laughs> you know, the fact, and of course sometimes if I have more power, I can inflict pain on the other and seem to get away with it, seem to succeed. This is what, you know, bigger countries do with smaller countries. In the end it doesn't work. You know, in the short run it can appear to work. You know, or if a strong, you know, if you're at work and a, a boss who has a lot of power, um, you know, you say something that maybe the boss doesn't like, and the boss has the power to inflict pain on you, you know, maybe in reaction to yours. In the long run, that's not going to resolve anything. It's going to leave you resentful. It's going to leave the boss disconnected, you know, and so forth. In the short run, it can appear to succeed, right? In the long run, wisdom tells us that that doesn't work because it leads to the cycles of resentment and reactivity which have their, you know, have their effects. You know, even though, again, people in power 
can appear to get away with things and maybe even live their whole lives, but it's actually not really uh, resolving things. That, and so it's this inability to be with the unpleasant and to find a way to respond compassionately that bodhisattvas see, they look at situations and they see that dynamic. They look at a conflict situation and they say, you know, as um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, the role of the peacemaker is to bring the suffering of one side to the other. It's to let, uh, you know, and for I think very much the spirit of Martin Luther King's work was to actually let people know of the suffering related to racism. Let people know of that through sit-ins which sort of bring out or let, let, the, let the standing up for rights um, almost catalyze uh, police violence. You know, you remember those scenes with the p- police with their hoses, with the demonstrators in the South in the 60s. And that evidence of almost like um, um, undeserved suffering, it opened people's hearts. And some changes, not fully adequate, were able to happen. And so the bodhisattva can see that situation, can look and say, and also know the third truth, that it's actually possible not to, because of pain, inflict pain on others. That that something else is possible. That it's possible to um, open people's hearts. And that that is actually a a better way to work with uh, difficulties and conflicts. Challenging, you know. Um, You know, if we had to imagine how to do that with some of the really places of great suffering on this world, that is extremely challenging. But that's what bodhisattvas try to do. They, they know that some kind of peace or transformation of suffering is possible. And then the fourth truth is that they have those, those skills. They have methods to, to work with it. And it's really that wisdom which guides uh, people's action. It guides the ability to, um, to see clearly. And so bodhisattvas sometimes have to study a lot of history. They have to study social analysis. They have, to, they have to understand the causes and conditions. That's part of wisdom. They have to study situations. They have to do research. Bodhisattvas do research at times. <laughs> you can imagine one of those arms of Avalokitesvara has a laptop, you know, <laughs> and goes into a situation and, and you know, the bodhisattva of wisdom can surf the internet and get the co- completely appropriate information necessary for this research project to help to uh, unravel some condition of suffering somewhere. That's what bodhisattvas do. And they, they are also very skillful in action. They're grounded ethically. You know, that's the, the second of the, the uh, qualities. They're grounded ethically so that they have a certain impeccability. Other people can call them names and say all sorts of things to them and criticize them publicly, maybe. And think of how King was criticized, Martin Luther King. Criticized incredibly, but they keep a certain balance, partly because there's an ethical commitment. In the Buddhist tradition, the ethical commitment is to what I named before, wise speech and being able to not harm others. Again, I would interpret nonviolence, generally, from Gandhi and King and Dorothy Day, is really about ethics. It's about saying, I'm going to try to transform things, but I'm going to keep ethical about it. In other words, I want my means to be as pure as my ends. I can't have a good goal and use unethical means because that destroys what I'm doing. 
And so bodhisattvas have, uh, get training to be uh, more and more impeccable from an ethical point of view. Very challenging. If anyone says anything nasty to you, you can, bodhisattvas, study the voices arising in their own minds that they would say and are just about to say, but bodhisattvas, at a sufficient level of maturity, cut it off. You know, they, don't, they don't say the nasty thing in return, they, but they notice it. They don't just get passive. You know, they can do something skillful. That's, that's hard. And so um, they're ethical, and they're also um, able to act skillfully. And this is one of the mysterious aspects of being a bodhisattva, because I think as we do this, maybe we have to learn from mentors and experiment, but I think as bodhisattvas get more mature, they're almost more intuitive. They're more intuitive about their, their actions. And the skillful actions just come more out of their being. I want to read a story which has always been powerful for me, which is of a... It's an interesting story because it's a story that's told by a man named Terry Dobson, who was training, we might say, to be a kind of bodhisattva. He was one of the early people who trained in Aikido in uh, Japan. And Aikido is a discipline, a martial arts discipline that is actually dedicated to love and helping others and not using force in a violent way. But, it, but it's also a defensive, it's a way to be defensive and to help others. And it's really based on love and compassion. It's, quite a, it's different than some other martial arts, which are a little more, we might say, um, oriented towards military purposes. The Aikido is a martial art that's a spiritual discipline dedicated to love. So here's this person training and he thinks that he has a situation where he can actually act. And this is his story. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids in row, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered onto our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The the blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. (laughs) I was young then. Some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape, I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I like, I like to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. The trouble was my martial arts skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. That's bodhisattva consciousness. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. 
We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train station. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity where I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. (laughs) This is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need to learn, you need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. <laughs> All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. What's going to happen? <laughs> a fraction of a second before he could move, someone shouted, hey! It was ear-splitting. I should be, hey! I remember the strangely joyous, lulting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman, sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in the easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clanking wheels, Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved as much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his tracks. (laughs) (laughs) The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he said. He asked as his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out in the garden, and we sit on the old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree, (laughs) and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up to the laborer, eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmon too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. 
standing there in my well-scrubbed, youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, that was a difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. Thank Terry Dobson for that, uh, that story. So it's this um, quality of skillful action that the bodhisattva, you know, that we would say would be uh, a very mature, ordinary bodhisattva, right? Not famous, probably just known among his community. But there's something that was just spontaneous, in a way took a risk, right? And was able to act. And it's that quality, I think, which is the skillful action that we train in. It involves taking risks sometimes, making mistakes. Um, you know, I think in the long run, probably having people you can train with. But some people might have that ability just more naturally. And the last quality I want to mention will take us into a, a short um, practice that I'd like us to do together. And that's the quality of vow, which is something that we can, can do together, that bodhisattvas stay connected to their, um, to their intentions. They stay connected particularly to their, um, their sense of their purpose. And so in many traditions, I think they're probably counterparts in Western traditions, bodhisattvas gather and they say, let me renew my connection to my deeper intention. And on the handout, I have some of the vows present. One of them is from the Theravada tradition. Uh, Crossed, I would cross, meaning crossing the river of life. Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm. So you get the sense of both the inner work and then the helping others at the same time. Comforted, I would comfort. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead others to Nibbana. Purified, I would purify others. This is at the bottom of the sheet. Enlightened, I would lighten others. Oh, may I awaken to supreme perfect enlightenment and bring well-being and happiness to all beings. What we're going to actually go for is to find each of our own individual words. This, is, this may be, this uses Buddhist language, and we can use very ordinary language. Another one is the one that I have also at the bottom from Tibetan, from um, Zen tradition. Living beings are infinite. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. And I'll just mention one more uh, traditional one. In the Vietnamese tradition, this is, a, this is one way, another way it's expressed. Sentient beings, I vow to help them cross the ocean of existence. Eternal sufferings, I vow to end. Spiritual methods that are innumerable, I vow to study and comprehend. 
the Buddha's unsurpassable dharma, I vow to realize. Now, those are traditional um, understandings of the vow, but another, others might be much more simple. I was thinking one of them might be, um, might be appropriate for some people. It might be something like, I vow to sit every day and bring the energy of my sitting out into my life. That's a bodhisattva vow of a kind. You know, I vow to um, cultivate my own inner qualities and help others. That would be a bodhisattva vow. Or one that I personally made uh, with a friend about six or seven years ago. We actually, at the time, didn't even call it a bodhisattva vow, but I think it was implicit, was this one. Let all my actions come out of presence and kindness. And that was a personal vow that I made, and it had a great power. I made it with a friend, which made a difference. And it, kind of, it really had a lot of power for a number of years, and I still have it on my wall near my telephone. <laughs> so, let all my actions come out of presence and kindness. And the purpose of the vow is to tap into our deeper motivations. And it's what, we're, what we'll do in the rest of the time is to, is to see if there's a vow that we would like to express. And it's fine if there's not. And it's the, what we'll invite is a way to find totally your own words. And again, they don't have to be, they don't have to use the word Buddha. They don't have to use any Buddhist language. They could be, I mentioned the one that my sister uses a few weeks ago, it's, she, she says sometimes to others, just be a better person. <laughs> so for myself, it might be, I vow to be a better person. <laughs> so it could be very simple. Or, or you know, I'm going to keep on developing wisdom and compassion, and I'll bring it out into the world. That's the bodhisattva spirit in very ordinary language. Do you get a sense of that? So what I'd like to do is to have us, um, just for a few minutes, take some quiet time, just to sit quietly. We'll take maybe three, four, or five minutes, just to sit quietly. And again, we'll, this, what we'll do is we'll find, our, uh, find phrases which may work for us, and if, you, if this doesn't feel appropriate for you, uh, then that's fine. And we'll basically uh, have it be quite private. You can keep it to yourself. I'll give a chance for anyone who wants to say theirs near the end to do so, but you don't have to. So it can be really totally private. Is that okay? No, just keep it going. Yeah. So let's just sit quietly. And invite to be in your awareness your sense of your deeper intentions related to this theme of the bodhisattva. Again, you don't even have to use the word bodhisattva, but something about doing some inner work or some spiritual practice, cultivating qualities like love or compassion or wisdom or patience or any of the qualities mentioned earlier and then bringing it out into the world to others. It might just be to your workplace or your family, or it doesn't have to be really ambitious about 
saving the world or really impacting, but just whatever is appropriate for you right now. And just let be present how, how, what your deeper intentions are. And as you sit, see if there are words that form, might just be a sentence or at most two sentences, that form as the words that are good for you. So we'll just sit for a little bit. And see what's coming to you. And if you'd like to write it down, feel free to do that.
let's just take a little more time, maybe 30 seconds or so to finish up. You may want to refine the language later, but let's go with the best that we have right now. We'll do a very short kind of ceremony and find a comfortable posture, a posture that would be good for you to make your vow for yourself. First, let's go inside and connect with that um, aspiration, that intention. In your body and in your heart, in your consciousness, let it be there. And however you want to say it to yourself, Repeat the vow to yourself internally right now. Staying connected with that energy, the aspiration. like to do it. It might be a bow, but it might just look around at the others. And I'd like to, I'd like to say a phrase, and if you, I'm going to say a phrase, and I think we can all say it together. And if, it does, if you want to change the language a little bit, that's okay, but it's this. We bow to you, bodhisattvas. <laughs> we bow to you, bodhisattvas. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. We bow to you, bodhisattvas. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. And let's do it one more time. As they say, with feeling. <laughs> we bow to you, bodhisattvas. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. And one, one last time. We bow to you, bodhisattvas. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. I'd like to invite anyone who would like to um, say your vow publicly. 
to, um, maybe is anyone, would anyone like to do that? And we, I think I could have a few people come up at a time. Anyone be interested in that? It actually can give it a little more power, but it's totally optional. Anyone? Elizabeth, would you like? Can you have, please, Robin? Please, let's have three at a time come up, right up front here. And what I'll ask to do, and maybe we can use, you can use this so we can actually have it. What I'd like to do is to say your vow and have each three of us say it. Each three of the people here say it. No, no, individually. And then we'll say collectively, we bow to you bodhisattvas, the same mm -hmm. phrase. Okay. So please. I vow to be compassionate to myself and others. And we'll say the phrase after three of them. I vow to cultivate loving kindness and open heart and clarity of thought in order to better myself and help others. I vow to awaken joy within myself and to bring that feeling to the service of the happiness of all people. We bow to you, Bodhisattvas. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. Thank you. Anyone else? Please. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Yeah. We'll have three at a time. I vow to show up and to take care of my side of the street. <laughs> I vow to bring clarity, focus, ease, and grace to myself and others in all situations. I vow to grow in compassionate awareness of myself and others and to act with courage from compassionate awareness for the benefit of all. We bow to you, Bodhisattvas. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. Please, yeah. I vow to practice patience and loving kindness for myself and others. I welcome to my innate beauty and the innate beauty of others. I intend to dwell in a place from which I may regard myself and all beings with infinite grace. We vow to you, Bodhisattva. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. Anyone else? Please. Okay. And any, a third person? Anyone? I vow to sit daily with a deeper intention of opening my heart and being more compassionate and generous to myself and others. 
My vow is to develop myself spiritually with God to such a degree that I will be a source for good in the world wherever I am planted. I vow to be present with my own pain and the pain of others with compassion. We bow to you, bodhisattvas. Now it is time to take your blessings out into the world. Anyone else? So knowing that we've all worked with that intention and vow and that it's, um, that it's present and, and in a way maybe the words of those who spoke up here probably were pretty similar to the words of the people who, who didn't. And so we can know that in a way we're speaking for each other. And, and, and so if this is... Um, if this has felt like it resonates with you, it can be really helpful to come back to this periodically. In many traditions, in Tibetan and Zen traditions, the vow, the bodhisattva vow, is actually repeated at least once a day. I know in some Tibetan traditions it's done three times a day. It doesn't take long, but it, you can imagine the effect that it would have. And so if this, if this felt resonant, and if it didn't, that's fine. You know, there, there are those thousand arms with a thousand tools, and the Bodhisattva one is, one of, is just one of a thousand, <laughs> and there are plenty of other tools. But, there, but if it did resonate for you, you might come back to it. In fact, if this, if this had a lot of resonance just today, maybe come back to it later today, or tomorrow morning, when it's still fresh, and see if it has a place in your own practice. Because it, again, it is uh, very, it's very simple in a way. And again, it can have totally non-Buddhist or even non-spiritual language, right? We can just, just very, can be, most of the language we heard actually was, we would even call it non-religious in a way, when, you know, that, we, that people gave. It's just very simple and personal. And we can come back to that, it's that when we do this work, it's actually one of the eight trainings, just in connecting oneself with one's vow or deeper intention, in itself is part of the training. And so just to remember that, and to um, know that this is simple and is, can actually, is quick, but it's actually quite profound. It can really touch. I, it's magical in a way. I know when I did that vow that I mentioned, of, I vow that my actions will come out of presence and kindness. And it didn't mean that I always did it. And, you know, I forgot it sometimes. And sometimes I would look, Was, were you present or kind? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, and that's okay. Because it's more like uh, intentions are not about perfection but they're about continually returning to what's important, even wherever we've been. So there's a lot of uh, forgiveness that's implicit here. We keep coming back to it. It's not like, okay, Donald, if you don't match up to this vow, you will get criticized by yourself. <laughs> so, it's, but it's, so it's more something that we work with as a continually coming back with a certain kind of um, forgiveness, mercy, even understanding that this is a, this is a path. It takes time, and it's a path of practice. So 
I think I'd like to end now just with um, a dedication of merit, which again, a very traditional part of gatherings, where we, in a way, it's a version of an intention practice. And there's a certain kind of um, symmetry where if we start with an intention when we begin, let's say when we begin a sitting and we say, I intend to, you know, we might use some version of our vow. May my actions come out of presence and kindness. And the dedication of merit is a kind of intention practice that we do at the end. It reminds us of our intention. And the traditional dedication of merit, and that's the Buddhist language for it, but it really is a kind of offering. It's a reminder of my intention. And the traditional uh, dedication is to say, I remember that I practice both for myself and for others. And may the positive qualities, the gifts, the energy, the value of my practice and our time together be offered to others. Be offered to others for their benefit, for their healing, for their transformation, for their freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.